The Freedom Dividend Podcast represents my opinion on financial markets, investing, economics, and politics. All information disseminated on the podcast is not investment advice. Anyone seeking financial advice should look to contact a licensed broker or industry-registered financial advisor. A bounce-back day for U.S. equities on Wall Street today as the indices had a dead cat bounce from what was a very poor start to the week. We saw some strength come in in the NASDAQ. The Dow rose a little bit to 36,119, but was pretty much flat on the day. The real gains in the market were seen in the oil sector. Oil reached $83 per barrel for West Texas crude and also in the bank stocks. But we also saw a rotation, a continuation out of growth stocks into value stocks. The sectors that have been holding up best on the week so far have been consumer staples, industrials, and other commodity-based businesses. And we continue to see that investors are looking for uh, value-oriented names. And also, the emerging markets have done very well this week. And I'll cover some of the emerging market stocks later on in the podcast. But we got the CPI numbers today, and it was a big headline as the CPI rose by 0.5% month over month. The core CPI, which excludes food and energy, was up by 0.6 on the month. But if you annualize the data, prices this past December rose by 7% compared to last December which is the highest reading for the CPI in the U.S. since 1982. So the highest CPI reading in 39 years. And this shows, again, that inflation continues to heat up. And it's also starting to become a huge political issue as a lot of people are pressing the Biden administration and the Federal Reserve to start fighting and combating inflation heavily. Another piece of economic data that we got out that was announced by CNBC is that during the holiday season in November and December, higher prices played a key role in the record $2.4 billion holiday sales this holiday season. So consumers are spending more money at the store, but it's not because they're buying more stuff or because the consumer is healthier, as many economists would suggest. But really, it's just that people are paying higher prices for the goods that they're buying. And so that's helping to uh, exacerbate retail sales. But it really shows how much the consumer has to stretch that prices played a key role in the holiday sales. And also that consumers are continuing to go deeper into debt to try and buy the things that they need to make ends meet. Now, we also yesterday got the release of the China Consumer Price Index year over year. That came in at 1.5% versus 1.7% expected year over year. So while the U.S. is experiencing 7% inflation year over year, China is only experiencing 1.5% inflation year over year. We also got the Producer Price Index for China year over year, which rose 10.3% versus 11.3% expected. Now, this is still lower than the U.S., but it is still a significantly high number. 
But one of the problems with this high producer price index number that we got is these are the producer prices for goods and services for businesses in China. And remember, America gets all of its merchandise goods from China because that's where we get all our trade deficits from. That's where we buy all of the goods that we consume here in America. So if China is experiencing year over year 10.3% producer price increases that again are going to eventually be passed on to the consumer later on in the year, that just means higher merchandise good prices coming into the United States, which means the American consumer is going to experience higher and higher price increases in the future. We also got the federal budget deficit for the month of December. There, we were having a forecast of a deficit of $5.8 billion. We beat that estimate by almost $15 billion. The, tr the budget deficit for the month of December alone, we ran a deficit of $21.3 billion. So the government spent $21.3 billion more in December than it collected in tax revenue. And this just shows how incredibly weak the U.S. economy is and how the U.S. government continues to act recklessly by spending money that it does not have. And again, it can't increase taxes much more on Americans as it is because it would place an even more burdensome uh, economy on the American consumer. And there are only so many tax revenues out there to collect. So the U.S. is going to continue to run these budget deficits. But this is another economic piece of data that is never mentioned in the mainstream media because people have just become accustomed to having trade and budget deficits. So they're never even announced in the mainstream media on financial television. Now, tomorrow, Thursday, we're going to get more economic data on inflation. The producer price index comes out and the core producer price index comes out. Costs for businesses that are eventually going to be passed on to the consumer. I expect those costs to come in hot, just like the inflation data did today. We also get the China trade balance tomorrow, and we also get retail sales for the United States. So I'll go over that on Friday, but we're going to get all that tomorrow, and that should come in line with the inflation numbers that came in today. Now, as I mentioned, oil prices rose all the way to $83 per barrel today. Now, a lot of the commodities that rose highly during the midst of the pandemic that a lot of people were saying were going to come back down in line are now reaching new highs, especially multi-year highs for a lot of these commodities, oil being one of them. But oil, again, is one of the biggest input prices in the economy because basically all goods and services that are produced, especially all goods that are produced, have oil costs built into them somewhere. Right. If they if these are merchandise goods that are shipped here from China, it takes a lot of oil to ship those goods overseas and then a lot more oil to then take the, the goods and distribute them throughout the country by truck or freight. Um, also, a lot of the resources that we have that need to get mined out of the ground or manufactured takes tons of energy in order to get those materials out of the ground. And so oil is an input cost that control that is baked into the price of almost all goods and services that we buy. And so if oil prices are continuing to climb the way they are, 
that means higher costs are going to come down the line. Again, oil has risen from about $78 a barrel to about $83 per barrel in the last week. And those are going to be costs that haven't even been uh, impacting the economy yet. So that just means there's going to be higher inflation in the future. But look at lumber. Lumber was one of the commodities that ran up most during the midst of the pandemic, mostly because a lot of people were moving into new homes and then renovating those homes. And so therefore, there was a high shortage of lumber. And lumber prices reached a high all the way back in May of $1,670 per 110,000 square foot board. Now, they then dropped significantly all the way down to $456 per 110,000 square foot board. And a lot of people were saying, see, this is evidence that inflation was transitory because lumber prices skyrocketed initially, but then came back down to earth. Well, now lumber prices are already back up to $1,239 per square board. And so we're not far off of the all-time highs for lumber, and they have been coming roaring back with a vengeance. And that's been going on in a lot of commodities. Again, oil, $83 per barrel. Natural gas was up 14% today alone. Beef prices are up 18% year over year. Poultry prices up 16% year over year. And by the way, that is one of the reasons why I think land, especially agricultural land, and also agricultural businesses are a great buy here. Uh, Gladstone land being one of those uh, stocks that I think is a great buy. Now, this is not financial advice. I'm not giving a recommendation to buy this stock. I'm just expressing my opinion on it. But you want to own land that can grow crops and that can be ranched to sell these commodity prices that keep rising in price, because as those commodities get more valuable, the land that's needed to grow and produce those commodities becomes more valuable as well. But again, we continue to see these rises. Copper is at its highest price since 2011, and it's almost near an all-time record high. Furniture costs up 14% year over year. Used cars up 41% year over year. And again, if this was simply a supply chain issue, we wouldn't be seeing price increases across the board in every single industry and sector throughout the economy. Because you can't possibly say that every single sector in the economy has been affected with its supply chain. But really what's going on, and I'll get into this later in the podcast, is we have too much money chasing too few goods and services to go around in the economy. And that's a result from the money printing that's gone on over the COVID pandemic, but more specifically over the past two decades during this reckless monetary policy that the Federal Reserve has had since the bursting of the dot-com bubble. But inflation, as I said, is starting to become a very political issue and a huge concern for the consumer. And even Jerome Powell mentioned this in his press conference a few months back, but one of the biggest inflationary pressures of all is the psychology of the consumer when the consumer starts to expect inflation in the future. Because what happens is, is people go out and buy in bulk and stock up and hoard goods that are non-perishable in anticipation of higher future prices. And that therefore creates even more shortages of goods, 
which means prices go up even further. Again, the example of that from the pandemic was toilet paper and hand sanitizer because people expected shortages and inflation in those goods. They went out and hoarded them. And then because of a result of that hoarding, the prices went up even further and the shortages increased even more for those goods. But again, this is another thing that's going to start to continue as inflation becomes such a political problem in the economy. Now, speaking of uh, politics and how inflation is becoming a bigger problem, I want to get to Powell's Senate confirmation hearing that took place on Tuesday. And a lot of the senators in the hearing were pressing Powell about the inflation data that's been coming out. And he was heavily criticized by a few senators for the Fed having gotten the transitory part of inflation wrong. Because at this point, it's becoming clear to a lot of Americans that inflation is not transitory because it's been here for much longer than the Federal Reserve anticipated. And the Federal Reserve did, in fact, get that piece wrong, and that's already evident to the markets. But the other piece that the Federal Reserve is getting wrong is the idea that they can fight this inflation once they decide to. But that's not going to be evident until they try and fail, which is coming very soon. But I wanted to go over some of the questions that Powell was asked during the hearing and some of his responses to the questions. Now, one senator from Pennsylvania asked Jerome Powell about negative real interest rates. And the point that he made is that the Fed is now forecasting, as I mentioned on the podcast, uh, three rate hikes this year and then an additional three rate hikes next year. And those rate hikes generally tend to be, at least in the past two decades, whenever they want to raise rates, typically tend to be 25 basis point rate hikes. So they raise interest rates by a quarter of a percent each time they make the announcement. And so the senator told Powell, look, if you do six quarter point rate hikes, that only gets interest rates to one and a half percent by the end of 2023. If inflation is 7% right now, which is what we're getting in the CPI data, that means that interest rates in America will still be highly negative. How can you fight inflation if you still have real negative interest rates? And don't those real negative interest rates distort the economic conditions and have a high effect on price increases? And of course, this was a great point to which Powell obviously couldn't answer this question honestly because it's so obvious and it was a great question. So Powell, as the typical politician that he is, just simply deflected on this, and he didn't even answer or address the idea that we have negative real interest rates in America. He just talked about supply chain issues, which seems to have become the scapegoat for all of this inflation. But as I mentioned, the reason that we have inflation is not necessarily because of supply chain constraints. Now, yes, we do have some supply chain constraints within the economy, and that has some upward pressure on prices. But the real problem is that we flooded the global economy and the American economy with U.S. dollars, and there are not enough goods and services to go around for those U.S. dollars. But this was a great question that Powell really didn't have an answer for. And of course, if Powell answered the question honestly and said, yes, that even if we raise interest rates six times by a quarter percent each time, that would still lead to real negative interest rates that can't fight inflation, the dollar would have 
fell off a cliff yesterday and gold would have went through the roof. And that's one reason why Powell can't come out and say that. But Powell also mentioned that raising rates should not have a negative impact on employment. Oh, really? Because it seems as if the last several months, the reason, and this comes from Powell and the Fed themselves, the reason that they have yet to raise interest rates so far is because they've been trying to support the economy that's recovering from the pandemic. And if they raise interest rates too soon, and they've mentioned this in their last few press conferences, then that will hurt employment. And now all of a sudden, he's asked about unemployment during the hearing, and his tone completely changes on this. But of course, raising rates would have a negative impact on employment. Because a big part of employment in America is people working for corporations and for big businesses that are taking on tons of debt to try and expand. And the only reason they have such access to a huge amount of corporate debt, again, corporate debt levels are at all-time record high levels as well. But the only reason that corporations have access to all this debt is because interest rates are extremely low. If interest rates start to rise and the cost of capital gets higher, that means there's less room for employers to hire people. So, of course, that would have a negative impact on unemployment. On, on and that's why part of the Fed's balancing act is between its dual mandate of price stability and employment, they have to try and balance out the two, right? Because obviously, if they focus more on price stability by keeping interest rates high, that hurts employment. And so therefore, if they try and raise rates during this so-called tightening cycle they're about to go through, of course, that is going to have a negative impact on employment. But again, it takes real positive interest rates to actually fight inflation. Because in order to fight inflation, and again, I've gone over this several times, but in order to fight inflation, you need to stop people from borrowing money and you need to convince people to save money. Now, as long as we have negative real interest rates, people are not going to be encouraged to save money because if there are negative interest rates, then that means that you are losing money or you're losing purchasing power if you save money. So you cannot fight inflation if interest rates are negative. And again, interest rates are negative because they are at zero to 0.25%, but the inflation rate is 7%. So the real interest rates in the economy right now are negative 6.75%. And again, if they raise rates a few times this year by a quarter percent, that doesn't get us anywhere near positive interest rates. And again, the inflation rate is 7% now officially, but it's really much higher than that if it was measured accurately. But it's also going to continue to get higher and higher as we continue to go on. So, you know, this is a big problem, but this is part of the reason why the Fed can't raise interest rates. And I'll get to that in a minute. But, you know, the other part of this whole game of having negative interest rates, it allows the government to pay down its debts illegitimately. Because if we have negative interest rates, that means the government is able to start lowering its debt amounts rather than if we had high interest rates that the government had to pay interest on. You see, when the government is able to print money to pay off its debts, that allows for the government to illegitimately pay its debts off. But 
again, the economy is so dependent on debt, all facets of the economy, including the federal government, state and local governments, individuals and corporations, there is no way the Federal Reserve is going to raise rates anywhere near what the inflation rate is. Now, with that, another thing I wanted to go over was Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, his interview on CNBC this week. Now, Jamie Dimon actually expressed some concerns about inflation, and he said that he's actually expecting more than four rate hikes in 2022. And his rationale for this is because he he understands that three quarter point rate hikes are not going to fight inflation. And inflation, as I mentioned, is becoming a very big political concern. And with the midterm elections coming up, that there is going to be pressure for the Biden administration and the Federal Reserve to start really trying to fight inflation. So he expects uh, at least four rate hikes in 2022. Now, another reason he expects more rate hikes than the Federal Reserve is currently projecting is because, and he mentioned this because he believes the, the, that the consumer balance sheet has never been more healthy. In other words, the average American household has never had a healthier, uh, healthier finances. And this is true if you don't account for uh, any variables, but the, the problem with this is the reason that most Americans' uh, households' balance sheets are very healthy is because of all the paper profits from financial asset price appreciation due to inflation. So for example, the stock market had one of its best years in recorded history last year. Home prices rose 19% nationally. We have a crypto bubble where tons of people had uh, are holding unrealized profits in cryptocurrencies, right? So a lot of the health of the American household uh, financial situations is really from uh, asset price appreciation and paper wealth. And the problem with that is that can all come crashing down very quickly. You could have said that the consumer uh, and the average American's financial situation was extremely healthy in 2006, 2007, because they had tons of equity built up in their homes. The problem with that is that was all paper profits that eventually just vanished once the bubble in the housing market popped. So when we say today that consumers' balance sheets have never been more healthy, it's really very misleading because it's only because there's a record amount of people participating in the stock market and home ownership is going up, especially amongst millennials. And those assets are appreciating much higher than what their intrinsic value is. And so the idea that the economy can handle rate hikes is absurd in my opinion, because one, those rate hikes would cause for a lot of these valuations and stock prices and home values to come crashing down. Again, the higher interest rates go, they act like gravity. They pull stock valuations down and they pull home prices down. So that wealth effect that was experienced last year that is showing that consumers have very healthy balance sheets would all go away if we start to raise interest rates. But also, 70% of the entire U.S. economy is consumer spending. And most of that consumer spending is on credit. People borrowing money on credit cards, uh, borrowing money to buy automobiles, 
borrowing money on personal loans, student loans, all of this consumer spending is occurring on credit. And if credit conditions tighten because interest rates start to rise, and if the cost of borrowing starts to go up and the cost of servicing your debt starts to go up, that is going to place a heavy burden on an economy that is 70% reliant on consumer spending alone. So I think Jamie Dimon has it right that we're going to have to raise interest rates much higher to fight inflation. But the part he has wrong and the part that most of the markets have wrong is that the economy cannot handle those rate hikes. And so therefore, we're not going to get them because the Federal Reserve is not going to purposely crash the markets and cause a depression from taking away consumer spending. They have spent the last two decades and especially the last two years trying to continue to uh, create consumer spending and borrowing in the economy. They are not going to all of a sudden take that away and crash everything they've been doing for the past two years and the past two decades. Now, with that, one of the announcements that was made this week that had an effect on some of the uh, gambling stocks was New York State just approved sports betting. And with this announcement, a lot of the online sports books, most particularly I want to go over Caesars, uh, announced promotions to try and get people to sign up on their site from New York. So if you are a resident of New York State, you could have signed up for a Caesars sportsbook account and received up to a $3,300 bonus for signing up for an account over the weekend. And I mean, this is one of the problems with the entire sports betting uh, community is customer acquisition costs are extremely high for these companies because there are so many competitors out there. And so obviously one of the reasons that you would give away such a high promotion is because you want customers to use your platform and you're hoping that they're going to become a customer for the next several years or for life. But part of the problem with this is one, all revenues generated from sports gambling in the state of New York are going to be taxed at 51%. So that is a huge tax rate for these sports betting companies in the state of New York. Another problem with this is that the promotion uh, expenses related to trying to get uh, people to use their sites. As I mentioned, Caesars gave away up to $3,300 on a promotion. Uh, FanDuel and DraftKings gave away $1,000 in a promotion to New York residents this weekend. And there were several others that gave uh, smaller amounts for promotions. But they actually are not allowed to deduct these promotion expenses from their revenues. And so therefore, they can't even deduct them and they're going to have to pay taxes on all of this. But again, I've gone over the sports betting uh, stocks before, but a big problem with this is the sports book is literally the least profitable part of any casino. You walk into any casino, whether it be in Atlantic City, Las Vegas, or wherever, and you'll notice that the sports book is all the way in the back of the casino. Because they want people who are going to the sports book to pass all the other tables before they get there. The sports book is only running about 5 to 6% profit margins for any casino company. Uh, and furthermore, again, as it's not as emotional as other types of gambling. When people go to the roulette table 
and they start to lose money, they can get very emotional and go and withdraw more money from the ATM and put it directly on the table and try and win it back right away. And that's how people get into trouble with gambling. But with sports, a lot of the time when you bet on sports, you know, say you're a football fan, you're going to bet mostly on football games. And it's not as emotional because if you bet on a number of football games for one weekend and you lose some money, you have to wait until next weekend to try and win your money back. And so that at least gives you a week or so to try and think about, you know, should I should I go and try and win my money back or not? It's not as emotional. It is emotional, but it's not as emotional as other types of gambling. So the sports books are the least profitable parts of any casino. And again, they have tons of uh, customer acquisition costs. And I also wonder how many people are just going and signing up with all these sites to take advantages of all the promotions they're giving away. Again, with Caesars, the way their promotion worked is if you uh, signed up for an account as a New York resident this past week, they gave you a $300 welcome bonus that was just instantly deposited to your account. And they were uh, offering a deposit match of up to $3,000. So if your initial deposit into the account was $3,000, they would deposit an initial $3,000 into your account, which you then could go gamble with. Now, the the $3,000 they deposited into your account, you couldn't actually just withdraw that money. You had to actually gamble with it. But essentially, they're giving you $3,000 worth of free bets. You don't even have to gamble with the $3,000 deposit you put into the account. So I imagine what a lot of people probably did is they signed up for the account. They got the $300 uh, deposit bonus. They then deposited $3,000 and got the $3,000 match. And they probably took that $3,000 and then just spread it out across a number of different games. Uh, and, you know, assuming they won 40 to 50% of their bets, they probably could walk away with twelve, thirteen hundred dollars $1,300 of free winnings that they didn't even have to take any risk on. And then they're probably just going to go next week or next month, whenever there's another promotion for another site, withdraw their money from Caesars and go place it into another sports book that's giving another promotion. And they're just committing arbitrage across all of these different gambling apps. And again, there's so much competition. I mean, there are at least 30, 40 different uh, gambling sites that you can use for sportsbook gambling. So these are terrible business models. And this is a, a, an area of the economy, which is totally oversaturated. And again, I, I know that a lot of states still have not legalized sports gambling, but it doesn't even matter in my opinion, because as I said, this is a very low, uh, margin business. And for the online sites, at least for casinos, they don't have as much customer acquisition cost. But for online sports books, the customer acquisition costs are through the roof. Their expenses on those acquisition costs are not tax deductible. And again, the tax rates on these sports books are incredibly high. So these are not very good businesses. And again, I'm recommending to stay short these names. I recommended shorting a lot of them in the beginning of the year. And I think it's a good time to start adding to those shorts. But this is, again, a terrible business model. And again, it wouldn't occur if we didn't have all the excesses of credit in the economy from low interest rates. Another thing that I wanted to cover just briefly on Rivian, Rivian announced last week that the 
uh, chief operating officer of the business left in December. And he was only with the, the company for one year. But remember, Rivian is just starting to get into the game now. And they still have tons of logistics and manufacturing setups to establish here. And this is a company that is literally on the ground floor trying to uh, operate a very complicated business. You know, auto manufacturing is very complicated and complex, and it's very difficult to do, which is why a lot of automakers get very low multiples on their stocks traditionally, because it's a very capital expensive, difficult business to execute. But look at all the problems that Tesla has had in the past and continues to have with their manufacturing. And Rivian is just starting and their chief operating officer literally just left in December with only being for the comp- with the company for one year. Now, in my view, this is an extremely negative sign. And uh, it's just another sign of all of the headwinds that Rivian is going to face as they try and ramp up production to try and compete with many other established automakers and especially try and compete with Tesla. Um, But this, again, is just another problem for these highly speculative companies. Rivian is now uh, selling at under $90 a share. And if you remember, it IPO'd just a few weeks ago and shot up all the way to 120, I believe, on the IPO day. And when I believe the shares went as high as $160 per share, they're already down almost 50% from that high uh, and clearly going to have a lot more problems in the future. Now, one good interview that I did see this week was with Wharton professor Jeremy Siegel. Now, Jeremy Siegel has a lot of the same views on inflation that I do. But one of the things that he said when he was on CNBC that I completely agree with is that the Fed is way behind the curve for fighting inflation and won't be able to effectively catch up with that curve to start fighting inflation. And they pressed him on the idea that inflation is going to continue to get hotter. And in his view, inflation is going to continue to go much higher. And he referenced a number of things uh, that are going to contribute to this. Uh, One being rising rents. Uh, Typically, when rents go up, they don't ever come back down. Uh, Rising wages, which again are very sticky. Typically, when wages or or salaries rise, they continue to stay very high because you don't ever give workers less money than what they're already making. So those those, uh, price increases are very sticky in the economy. And also rising commodities prices. And one of the things they mentioned to him which again, a lot of people that are trying to cling to the transitory narrative, they always bring up lumber prices, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast. But as I mentioned, and as he mentioned, yes, lumber did have a very significant pullback. Lumber prices rose very quickly uh, in a short matter of time, and so they were due for a pullback. But they are on the rise again. And he also referred to the CRB commodity index, which is near all-time highs. And again, prices across the board are rising in all commodities. Oil, gold had a very strong day trading at 1827 as I speak in the Asia markets. Uh, Silver is rising, copper near all-time highs. Wheat, soybeans, corn, poultry, beef, all selling near all-time highs. Uh, Steel has had a pullback, but it's still trading significantly higher than it was a few years ago. Iron ore prices continue to rise. So commodities prices are rising across the board, 
and the CRB commodity index is near all-time highs. So he's right in saying that inflation is going to continue to get higher and higher, especially because the Fed is so far behind the curve that they can't effectively fight inflation. Because if you have 7% inflation, raising interest rates by a quarter percent is not going to do anything to slow that down. But he also recommended that you cannot own bonds, which I've been saying for a long time, you cannot own bonds. In fact, I've been saying it's a good idea to short U.S. Treasury bonds, particularly at the long end, because interest rates on 20 and 30 year Treasury bonds are way lower than they should be. And as those yields start to go higher, as investors start to recognize the inflation problem the United States is going to have, those bonds prices are going to come down significantly. And he mentioned own real assets. Now, he didn't say mention anything about owning Bitcoin. He did say stay in equities. Uh, now, I agree with that. You want to be in equities. That's one of the best ways to, uh, to navigate inflation is you want to have companies that can pass that those higher costs on to customers. But he didn't say specifically, uh, you know, he meant specifically U.S. stocks. Now, in my mind, you want to be in equities, but you want to be mostly in equities in other economies around the world outside of the United States, where inflation is not such a big problem. Again, I just went over the CPI data released in China. They only experienced 1.5% inflation for the entire year when the U.S. experienced 7% inflation, almost four times higher than what is going on in China. So to me, I want to own equities all over the world in emerging markets. And, you know, I, I'm going to go over that again in a minute. But one other point that Professor Siegel made is that the reason inflation is so bad right now is not necessarily because of supply chain constraints. Again, that is one of the problems that's occurring, but it's actually a much minor problem than people realize. The real inflation problem, and you'd understand this if you understand simple supply and demand economics, and again, this is an economics professor at the Wharton School of Finance. There are, in his opinion, there is too much money chasing too few goods. In other words, when the pandemic started and people didn't work, right, people were staying home, whether because they wanted to or the government was mandating they stay home. People stopped working and stopped producing goods and services. The Federal Reserve then printed several trillion dollars to give to the federal government for the federal government to then give to Americans across the nation. Those Americans then used that money to try and buy up goods and services where goods and services were not being produced. So, of course, due to supply and demand, prices across the board in all industries went up. It's very simple supply and demand economics. When you have too much money in the economy chasing too few goods, prices are going to soar. But again, the problem is not necessarily supply and demand, right? The problem is the money printing. But of course, there is always unlimited demand if there is unlimited supply of money. The problem is, is that we're not producing enough goods and services to meet that demand. What would have been better when we had 
the COVID-19 pandemic start was for the Federal Reserve to contract the money supply. Because again, supply of goods and services was going down since nobody was working. So had we contracted the money supply, that would have prohibited all of the inflation that's going on now. But of course, that wasn't the politically correct choice to make at the time. Everyone at the time wanted the government to print money, to give stimulus checks to Americans, to give extended unemployment benefits. That's why Donald Trump, the populist, signed on to all of that, because that's what the voters wanted. And that was the politically correct thing to do. But of course, now that we're seeing all the consequences of that, everyone is upset. No one was upset when they got stimulus checks, but now everyone is upset because the the prices they're paying at the pump are higher. Well, that's what happens when you have too much money chasing too few goods and services. In order for us to combat inflation, not only do we have to contract the money supply to reverse all of that, those mistakes that were made, again, not, in, not just in the COVID pandemic, but in the last two decades, but we also have to start getting Americans back to work productively. And that means not just working government jobs, not just working service sector jobs, but working in manufacturing and in industrial work to produce goods to increase supply, which can allow prices to come down. But again, one, we can't do that because Americans that are unemployed, A, don't have the incentive to go back to work because they're still collecting government benefits. B, don't have the skills to do those types of jobs. And C, we don't have enough savings to make the capital investments to build manufacturing plants to create the goods that people want to buy because we have no savings because interest rates have been so low for so long. And so instead of having savings, we just have a bunch of debt piled up all over the economy. And again, 70% of the economy because of that is based on consumer spending of printing mo- of printed money. And that's why the Federal Reserve is not going to fight inflation. But again, I want to get back to the point because that I was making about emerging markets, because you don't just have to invest in U.S. equities. You can own equities. You can own stocks all over the world. And one of the points that I want to make, and I get this from Jeff Gunlock, who points this out, but stock prices in the United States are at all-time record highs as far as a price-to-earnings or a price-to-sales ratio. In other words, stock valuations are higher comparative to the earnings the companies in the U.S. stock market can produce than they've ever been before. So U.S. stocks have never been this expensive before. But interestingly enough, U.S. stocks have never been cheaper compared to U.S. bond prices. And again, I went over this in the last podcast, but this is because the bond market has been rigged by the Federal Reserve buying all these bonds. The Fed keeps buying all these bonds, pushing bond yields down and bond prices up. And so we're in a unique situation that's really never occurred before, where even though U.S. stocks are at an all-time record high as far as how expensive they are compared to the earnings the companies are producing, they're actually at an all-time record uh, low, they're extremely cheap compared to bonds. But stocks outside of the United States are even cheaper 
than stocks in the United States and are even cheaper relative to United States bonds. And if you look at all the valuations of all these different stocks uh, around the world and all these different economies around the world, they have severely underperformed the United States economy over the last decade. And, and even in last year, they, they severely underperformed. But if you want to look for a playbook on how to play inflation and how to ex- escape it, go back to the 1970s. And not only did gold outperform the markets in the 1970s, but emerging markets and other economies around the world, foreign stocks, extremely outperformed the United States in the 1970s. And they're going to do that again in this decade. Because they're starting from much lower valuations, and they also have citizens that are in much better financial shape than Americans are, and that don't have as much debt. And again, as the dollar begins to fall, once people recognize that the Fed can't fight inflation, the dollar is going to fall in value against other fiat currencies around the world. When other fiat currencies around the world appreciate in value, that means that other citizens and other nations are going to become wealthier. The middle class of other nations in emerging markets is going to be in much better financial shape and have much more purchasing power relative to the middle class of America. And so therefore, you would want to own companies that are selling products and services to people who have much more purchasing power and are going to be able to have much higher amounts of consumer spending than the United States is. So you don't have to just hedge your inflation by buying gold or by buying equities. You can also buy equities in emerging markets. And, you know, I I mean, just on the week, uh, we really saw a lot of strength in emerging markets. Um, They actually outperformed the U.S. markets heavily for the first two trading weeks of the year. But interestingly enough, gold actually rose on inflation data today. When the CPI numbers came out, gold actually turned positive on the day and it rose uh, a few bucks on the day and it finished the day again at about 1827. And this is the first time really that gold prices rose on higher inflation. As I mentioned before, gold prices have been selling off every time we get hotter than expected inflation data because markets are forward-looking and markets, at least as far as currency traders are concerned, currency traders were looking forward to the Federal Reserve fighting inflation every time inflation numbers got hotter. But now that traders are buying gold on higher inflation data, that shows me that some people are finally starting to understand that the Federal Reserve actually can't fight this inflation because it's gotten so far out of control And they've fallen so far behind the curve, they can never catch up to it. And but with that, you know, Bitcoin had a slight rise on the week. But really, um, to me, it just looks like a dead cat bounce. I mean, it fell very far uh, in a short period of time. So it was due for a little bit of a uh, reversal. But I think that Bitcoin is going to keep going down. Interestingly enough, Bitcoin leverage hit its all-time high this week. So I think a lot of people are coming in and trying to buy the dip. Um, I think some people are buying the dip because they're trying to get the, the price pushed back up to sucker more people in and FOMO more people in. But I also think there are tons of people out there who have been so conditioned that every time 
the price of Bitcoin dips, it's going to come firing right back. So they're trying to buy as much Bitcoin now while they think it's at a low price. But of course, it's still completely overpriced. So I think it's going to continue to go down in the next several months, especially as there's more turmoil in the markets as we get closer to the Fed's tightening cycle. Uh, Bitcoin really didn't react well to that at all because it's a risk on speculative asset. And with other risk on speculative assets, it sold off completely. But again, emerging markets completely outperformed so far for the first two trading weeks of the year. China in particularly has been outperforming U.S. stocks. And China is one of those uh, countries that was hit very heavily last year because a lot of the perceived political risk in the uh, China market. Now, I, I do think people are right to worry about the political risk of a lot of Chinese stocks because of the nature of their government. But I just want to cover some of the main Chinese tech stocks that really have had a great week and a great start to the year that were really suppressed last year. Alibaba, which is the Amazon of China, was up 4% on the day, up 11% over the past week. And that stock was down over 40% last year alone from its all-time highs. Now, if you think about that, again, the Chinese economy is the most productive economy in the world. They run huge trade surpluses. Um, they just reported their trade balance the other day and ran a, a $79 billion trade surplus as opposed to the United States running $81 billion trade deficits. But China is the most productive economy in the world. They have the second biggest military in the world. And they're a country whose currency is going to appreciate very significantly in the next few years, again, making their middle class have much more purchasing power and be much more wealthy. And so to me, if, if you could own Amazon at a 40% discount, which is what Alibaba is in China, but you can also own it in the midst of the beginning of a huge bull cycle in the markets where the consumer is going to get stronger and stronger, that is a great buy and a great discount there. And again, we're starting to see the right momentum come into this stock and other Chinese tech stocks that shows that traders are getting into those names because, again, they're trying to get out of the U.S. They're recognizing all of the inflation threats in the United States, and so they want to get out of the United States. Baidu, which is the Google of China, they also own a 30% stake in a uh, streaming service in China. Um, they were up 1.7% today and 9% on the week. They also are uh, developing fully autonomous vehicles with BAIC Group, which those vehicles are already operating on the road and driving fully in traffic. And so they're going to be producing self-driving taxis in the next several years. But this stock was down 29% over the last year. Again, just killed because a lot of people sold China stocks because of all the political risk they were worried about. JD.com, which is sort of like the Spotify of China. It was down 5% or sorry, it was down 0.5% today, but that was just a slight pullback because it was up 17% over the last week. This stock was down 15% last year. Um, the Emerging Markets ETF EEM, ticker symbol EEM, 
uh, was up 1.5% today, 5.5% over the past week. And that was down 6% last year. And that is a an ETF that has exposure to emerging markets all over the world, but has a 30% exposure to China. But again, that significantly underperformed US markets last year. The NASDAQ, or sorry, this S&P finished, I believe, up 29% last year. And this ETF was down 6%. So it underperformed US markets by 35% last year. But again, I think that's going to change in the years ahead as the dollar starts to lose value against other fiat currencies. And there's a lot of uh, wealth that's created in a lot of these emerging market countries. Lastly, Tencent, which is a technology uh, conglomerate in China, up 3% on the day, 12% on the week, and it was down 17% over the past year. And again, these stocks do come with some political risk. Uh, I also think that they are longer term investments. I'm not sure if this is going to be the year that they gain back most of what they lost. Um, we have to see a little bit more momentum before I'm convinced of that. But they did have a very solid week the past week. So I'm going to continue to monitor these because these are great companies and great buys, in my opinion. And again, they're in what I think is going to become the greatest economy in the world over the next several decades. So I want to get into China early and buy these stocks after they've been so crushed over the past year and so oversold, in my opinion. But China will have the wealthiest middle class in the world. Uh, they're Again, they're the most productive nation in the world. They run $80 billion worth of trade surpluses every month. And again, they have a lot of technology in that country. They have a lot of uh, a, lo a lot of uh, a heavy population that's going to continue to grow as the, the country allows for people to have more and more children. And so I think the demographics are great there. I think that their currency is going to appreciate. And I think that the Chinese in general are going to become much more wealthy over the next decade because they deserve to be because they produce all of the goods that are used throughout the rest of the world, most particularly in America. Now, with that, uh, European stocks are also incredibly cheap compared to U.S. bonds. Europe also out, uh, was outperformed by the U.S. significantly last year. And a lot of productive manufacturing companies are in European countries. And also uh, in the Middle East and in Russia, a lot of oil stocks are very cheap relative to U.S. oil companies. And again, these are the more productive companies around the world. But for the most part, people have been investing in the United States over the past decade because they perceived the American middle class to be the most wealthiest middle class in the world. And that's only been the case because the United States has had the privilege of having the world's reserve currency over the last several years. But once that ends, because once the U.S. dollar starts to fall in value against other fiat currencies, all that is going to end because, again, America's middle class is one of the least productive middle classes in the world. And so when we have to rely on producing goods for ourselves instead of getting them from our trading partners by borrowing money from them, 
the American middle class is going to experience inflation that we haven't seen before, and that's going to ravage the U.S. economy. And so I'd prefer to own stocks in countries that sell uh, products and services to wealthier people. But people have been willing to overpay for these U.S. stocks because the U.S. economy has been perceived to be the richest in the world. And again, that's all going to change. But this is the time to get out of U.S. dollars and get out of the U.S. before it's too late. I'm not saying you can't own any U.S. stocks, but U.S. stocks are completely overvalued and they will be completely diminished in value once inflation really starts to heat up in the next year. And again, we're starting to see in the beginning of the year here in the first two weeks of trading that people are rotating out of the U.S. People are selling U.S. stocks and buying emerging market stocks, particularly in China, because they see the growth rates in China are much more uh, have much more potential than the growth rates in the United States. And they're starting to see all the problems mounting in the U.S. economy. All of the debt, all of the inflation is all going to hit us very, very soon, especially as the Federal Reserve shows their hand and tries to tighten monetary policy and fails probably by Q2, if not the end of Q3. But now is the time to get out of the United States and we are literally living on borrowed time. This is going to happen very soon. You need to get into emerging market stocks, companies that have much better valuations, price to earnings and price to sales wise, that have long track records for earnings, that pay much higher dividends than stocks in the United States. And by the way, high dividend paying stocks have been catching bids because people want the cash flow. People in an environment where we have high inflation, want to be in stocks that pay high dividends. And the stocks that offer the highest dividends in the world are located throughout the, the world economy, except for the United States. So this is the time to position yourself, contact your financial advisor, and get advice on how to invest in emerging markets, because they are going to outperform the U.S. over the next decade. And if you stay in U.S. stocks, you're going to have a lost decade, just like people who stayed in U.S. stocks in the 1970s had a lost decade. It's time to get out of the U.S. now and start going into countries that have much better economic aspects in the future, most particularly China and other Asian countries and Europe.